hear me? It's working? Okay, great. Well, I just hope that you're not going to be sick of me, I guess, by the time this uh, service is over. <laughs> but uh, yeah, God's doing the heavy lifting, trust me, on that one. Um, so, amen. We are studying in Joshua chapter 11 and 12. So there's a lot to get through. So we'll, we'll try to be as, as quick as we can through it. And um, yeah, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you again that you are our Heavenly Father. We thank you that you have provided for us uh, your son, Jesus. We thank you that you've provided your scripture, your word to our lives, that we can build our lives on it and be saved and be um, purified and to know you and grow in you. So Lord, I ask for your help to speak your word this morning, Lord, and I thank you that uh, your word is living and active, and may it be um, penetrating into our hearts this morning, I pray, and uh, we just give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so if you study history, and military history in particular, you'll see throughout history there have been uh, many times where a smaller group, a smaller force, has had victory against a larger army. There's many examples, some of the more famous ones, the Battle of Marathon, 490 BC, uh, the Greeks against the Persians, um, the Battle of Cannae in 216 BC, the, the Carthaginian general Hannibal over the Roman legions just totally decimated them. Um, a little more recently, into the 80s, uh, 1415 AD, uh, the Battle of Agincourt, where uh, Henry V's uh, English longbows totally uh, wiped out the French, uh, French army. And there's something about these battles. They're always amazing. It's, it doesn't make sense to our brains that, that they would win, because we typically equate greater numbers with victory. And there also seems to be something in us, too, that seems to root for the little guy, the underdog. And so, you know, this is the stuff of, of books and movies and songs. Uh, you see it time and time again that despite overwhelming odds, a smaller group wins the day. And there can be various factors, either training, technology, tactics, just good fortune, or the complacency of the larger army. And so as we look today, we see, you know, the Israelites, though they were small in number, they had, of course, the ultimate advantage that God was on their side, fighting for them and bringing them victory. And other generals over the years have made the same claim. This was true. This is actually true for the Israelites. God, God's cause was their cause and vice versa. And as we've read in previous chapters, God miraculously interceded for them. He brought down the walls of Jericho, uh, defeating the city of Ai, making the sun stand still at Gibeon, and generally giving them success in all of their battles. 
as long as they followed and obeyed him. We remember the words given to Joshua in chapter 1 at his commission. He says, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And this is kind of, as I was preparing this, kind of the key verse um, in this message, just the importance of reading, meditating on, and carefully obeying God's word in our lives. And you know, God desires our success. He wants us to succeed. And of course, his success may look different than what we think, especially in North America. What our, we think of success may be completely different, but we know that following God's plan for our lives is the best way. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And that's God's heart for us. Let's get into the text, <clears throat> starting chapter 11, verse 1. It says, When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Ashaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and all in the, in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth Dor to the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Mizrathoth, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord had said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor, was formerly, Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There were none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all of their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder, but every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who grieved. So, in the last chapter we saw that there was this group, a confederation of five southern 
kings in the southern part of Canaan who uh, banded together to attack the allies of Israel in the city of Gibeon. And of course, we read, God gave victory to the Israelites, made the sun stand still so that they could go out and pursue the army to finish the job. And Joshua came back, executed the five kings, and went and then conquered all of their cities in the south. So hearing this, all of the, the northern kings are now, they're freaking out. Because, so Jabin, who's kind of the, the ringleader of them, the king of Hazor, which is in far northern Israel, basically puts out the call far and wide to stop Joshua and the Israelites. So he gathers a coalition of northern kings now. It says far from the Jordan Valley, that's the Arabah, in the east, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, basically the whole northern part of, of that area. And uh, as was mentioned earlier as well, normally all of these kings would be fighting themselves. They, they, they were always in fighting. Uh, but now, of course, they're united against a common foe. And so they gathered this massive army, it says at the waters of Meron, which is today uh, Lake Hula, north of the Sea of Galilee in Israel. And it says they numbered more than the sand on the seashore, a seemingly uncountable number. And so they, an absolutely, what they thought, an absolutely overwhelming force to wipe out these upstart Israelites once and for all. In, in reading it, though, you can almost get a sense of the fear and desperation of these northern kings um, to really, you know, they, they saw, they know the power of God, and they were afraid. And so they wanted to really stop these Israelites. Um, and you can also, you can also kind of feel the murderous hatred that they had against God's people. So Joshua, against this overwhelming force that is bent on your destruction, the natural feeling would be to be afraid. And, you know, we can all identify. We, we all know fear. We all know what it is to feel afraid. And in, it's particularly, I think, relevant in this day and age where the world is, is thick with fear. It is permeated with fear. Even as, as believers sometimes, we can start to, to buy into that and get into the, that fear headspace. But we're not to live in fear. The people of God, we're not to live in fear. And so that's the first thing that God tells Joshua again, is not to fear. God is for them. Who can be against them? And he promises that the next day, God will give Joshua the victory over this army. And so Joshua now has a choice, right? Will he give in to fear and retreat? Or will he go into battle and trust God? Well, Joshua hears God's promise, takes God at his word, and obeys, and trusts God for the victory. And the next day, he attacks the army suddenly, a surprise attack, and with the Lord's help, totally decimates the army, routes them all the way to the Mediterranean, 
crippling their horses and burning their chariots and wiping them all out. The horse and chariot is notable. It's really, it was the most advanced military technology of that day. An army with horses and chariots would basically, they would be able to pretty much steamroll over any other force, especially the Israelites on foot. And uh, they were very advanced, very mobile, and they had a lot of firepower. And, uh, but you know, it's not a problem for God. Psalm 20, verses 6 and 7 says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. So Joshua took this to heart. He trusted in the name of the Lord that he would save him, and he did. He gave him victory. After Joshua deals with the routed army, he comes back to deal with the enemy kings and their cities. He says he takes their cities, kills the kings, and all their inhabitants. He doesn't destroy all the other cities, but he utterly destroys and burns the city of Hazor. Why? Well, as it says, that were, they were kind of the lead city in this coalition. They were the ones who really wanted to oppose the Israelites. And so this city was a symbol of the opposition and defiance of God and his rule and will. And so it couldn't be allowed to stand. It needed to be taken down to show that God is the ultimate authority and the ultimate victory belongs to him. I mentioned earlier this feeling of fear, desperation, and hatred from the enemy armies. This is also the spirit of our enemy, the evil one, Satan. He knows his destruction is sure, and he fears it. And he hates God, and he hates all that he has made, especially God's people. So he desperately rages against God's creation and God's people. His goal, Jesus says in John 10, is to steal, kill, and destroy, to take as many down with him as he can. Jesus says, though, that he has come to give us life, to give us life abundantly. And so as was mentioned, has been mentioned earlier in earlier messages, we are all in a spiritual battle. Whether we are aware of it or acknowledge it or not, it is a reality of Christian life. All who believe and follow Jesus are in a battle with the spiritual forces of darkness. We're called to stand and fight in God's might and his armor, to use the sword of God's word. And so this account of, of the conquest of Canaan by Joshua and the Israelites is a record of all that God did through him in conquering the land. It also can be a picture of the personal battle against sin in our lives and the sanctification by the Holy Spirit. When we believe that Jesus died for our sins and receive him into our life as Lord and Savior, we cross over into the promised land that God desires for us, a new covenant relationship in Jesus. Our sin is cleansed by Jesus' blood shed for us, and we are declared righteous before God. But practically, in this fallen world, we're not perfectly righteous yet. We still struggle with sin in our lives. 
And as mentioned, we are stepping into a spiritual war. The battleground is hearts and minds. And just as, just as Joshua destroyed the enemy strongholds, God helps us to do the same in our lives. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3, three and 5, 3 to 5, says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So Satan, our enemy, the tempter, through our weak and fallen nature, wants strongholds of sin in our lives. We have can all identify, you're just going through the day, boom, a, pop, a thought pops into your mind. Where did that come from? Where? Weird. And, you know, these, he, you know, is trying to get us um, to, to take the bait. And, you know, we can start entertaining these thoughts. And soon enough, it grows into a foothold. And if we keep doing it, it grows, can grow into a stronghold in our minds. And this is not God's desire for us to be dominated by sin. He wants us to walk in his light and his victory. And he gives us the power of his Holy Spirit living in us and the weapons of his word and prayer through which we can take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Praise the Lord that he is with us and he helps us. Because without him, we are, it would be impossible it's overwhelming. But with God on our side, we can win. We still fight the battles, but in Jesus, we fight from a position of ultimate victory. Jesus has already won the war over sin and death through his death and resurrection. And one day we will be with him in heaven and walk in perfect righteousness and sinlessness. For now, in this world, we still daily fight the good fight of faith to follow and obey Jesus. In this life, God wants us to flee from sin, not to be a killjoy and keep us from having all the fun, but because he's a good and heavenly father. He loves us and knows that sin leads to destruction and death, and he desires what's best for us. God's way and his plan for our lives in his promised land is the best one. <clears throat> Carrying on, verse 15. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Balgad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings, and struck them, and put them to death. Joshua, Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, 
for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakin left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So, why did Joshua have success in taking the land? Well, for one, God was for him. God was with them. Who can stand against God? Well, also, he was faithful to do all the Lord commanded him to do through Moses. Simply, he heard the word of God spoken to him, and he obeyed it, all of it. He left nothing undone. There was no partial obedience, which really is disobedience. He didn't stop at Jericho or Ai or Gibeon and say, now, that's enough. I think we've, we're done here. This is good enough. Well, really, he couldn't stop because the enemy didn't stop. He was in a battle whether he wanted to be or not. And the same is true for us in our spiritual life. And that's one of the goals of the Christian life is gaining ground against our battle with sin, this, this uh, process of sanctification, it's called, being made holy. Remember Mission Impossible, you know? We're still making movies, I think. They're up to like eight or nine or something. I don't know. Um, but the old show, the old TV show, started with, here's your mission, should you choose to accept it? And in our own, it's just something you um, in our own strength, it's mission impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And sometimes it may feel that we're not gaining ground and have no victory in our lives. And we may wonder why that is. Well, you, we may need to have some time of self-reflection and, and seeking the Lord and ask, are we as much as we're able walking in obedience to God's already revealed word in our lives. James calls us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. So are we hearing and doing? These are challenging words. None of us, myself included, want to hear this <laughs> in our flesh. But sometimes we need to hear it. Um, another challenging thing in this chapter in Joshua is the total destruction of the land's inhabitants. In 21st century North America, we struggle to read these words. It, it seems really, really harsh um, from a God we know as a loving God. And the passage says that God hardened their hearts, that they should be destroyed. That's a challenging passage. But it's in the Bible, so we can't shy away from it. There's a couple of ways of looking at it. That God directly hardened their hearts to resist the Israelites to fulfill his sovereign purpose. God is God. His ways are above our ways. He is an absolutely holy, 
and just God. And sin must be dealt with. Sin must be punished. And so he is totally justified and able to do this. And maybe in his sovereign foreknowledge, he knew that the Canaanites would never repent. He could give them opportunity and opportunity, and they would never repent in their hearts. Their hearts would always be hardened to God and resistant to him. Always God is sovereign, and always his ways will be accomplished. The Canaanites were set apart for destruction so that God's holy work could be done. Again, this is a picture of sin in our lives. We must be absolutely ruthless with it, not give it an inch, because it will take a mile. Jesus himself has some challenging words of how serious we are to be with our sin. He says in Matthew 5, 29 to 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. He's not talking physical mutilation, of course, because you can still pluck out an eye and sin with the other one. Our old sinful nature will never submit to God. We must always put the old man to death. Again, because God wants the best for us and wants us to give us life, not take it away. And the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is a process. It's not going to happen all at once. Sometimes we don't want to surrender, and we love our sin and want to hold on to it. There's an old essay written 60 or more years ago called My Heart Christ's Home, and it talks about the process of surrendering our life to Christ. We'll read a portion of it just closer to the end. It says, There is just one more matter that I might share with you. One day I found him waiting for me at the door. An arresting look was in his eye. As I entered, he said to me, there's a peculiar, peculiar odor in the house. There's something dead around here. It's upstairs. I think it's in the hall closet. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. Yes, there was a small closet up there on the landing, just a few feet square. And in that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anyone to know about, and I certainly did not want Christ to see them. I knew they were dead and rotted things left over from the old life, and yet I loved them. And I wanted them so for myself that I was afraid to admit they were there. Reluctantly, I went up with him. As we mounted the stairs, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed at the door. It's in there, some dead thing. I was angry. It was the only way I can put it. I had given him access to the library, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the playroom. Now he was asking me about a little two-by-four-foot closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I'm, I'm not going to give him the key. Well, he said, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay here up on the second floor with this odor, you're mistaken. I'll take my bed out on the back porch. I'm certainly not going to put up with that. And then I saw him start down the stairs. When you have come to know and love Christ, the worst thing that can happen is to sense his fellowship retreating from you. 
I had to surrender. I'll give you the key, I said sadly, but you have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't the strength to do it. I know, he said. I know you haven't. Just give me the key. Just authorize me to take care of that closet, and I will. So with trembling fingers, I passed the key to him, took it from my hand, walked over to the door, opened it, entered it, took out all the putrefying stuff that was rotting there, and threw it away. Then he cleaned the closet and painted it, fixed it up, doing it all in a moment's time. Oh, what victory and release to have a dead thing out of my life. So we need to have God search our hearts daily and surrender to him. As we finish off this chapter, we see that Joshua drove out the Anakim from the central hill country. And they were known as giants. They were a giant, a large race of people, a large group of people. And so he drove them out from all of the central part of Israel. And so, the, But they went down to the southwest area by the sea in modern-day Gaza. And it would be the future area of the Philistines, which when we read later in the time of David and the um, king, early kingdom, that it'll, it will cause problems for the kingdom of Israel. And if you remember Goliath, especially, um, believed to be one of these Anakim descended from them. But Joshua himself was faithful to do all that he was called to by God and brought a period of peace to the Israelites. But there was still more land to be conquered. There's always more of the Lord's work to do. Now, chapter 12, I'm not going to read the chapter, um, you can read it yourself. Uh, it's really a recounting of the various kings that God gave um, the Israelites victory over, first under Moses, then under Joshua. And so, yeah, you can read that yourself. Um, the first two Amorite kings under uh, Moses, um, Sihon and Og, which was part of the eastern Part, uh, east of Jordan, and before they even entered the Promised Land, God gave them victory over these people, over these kings. It's really kind of see it as a, as a grace of God before entering the Promised Land that they would have a place of rest before continuing the battle. And God used this, these defeats of these two kings mightily um, as a sign to the other nations to show his power and greatness. It's the same for us as we allow God to work in us and he provides victory over strongholds of sin. He wants us to be living testimonies to the world of his power and glory, righteousness and truth, and mercy and grace. And just like the Israelites, we often fail, but his will for our lives is our sanctification. Really, he just wants a relationship with us. He just wants us to know and love him deeper every day. And just as Joshua gives a recounting and a remembrance of the victories of God for his people, it's also good for us to take time. 
to look back on all the battles God has won in our lives. You know, it's a good idea to keep a prayer journal or to make notes in your Bible of prayer requests because then we can go back later and, and see and remember the prayers that God has answered and the victories that he's won. It helps to encourage us to remember God's faithfulness, to see all that he's done for us. It strengthens our faith and gives us hope to trust God for future provision and victories. Sometimes as we go forward, it's healthy to look back and see what God has brought us through. Although tempting, we can't stay in the past. We can't coast on past victories. There's always new ground to gain. It's true personally, in our individual lives, and it's also true corporately as a church, especially relevant as we are in this time, entering this time of, of pastoral transition. It's critical, I think, to take time and look back over the years and celebrate all that the Lord has done here, how God has worked in and through Aerosmith to impact our community for Christ, to celebrate the personal and corporate victories that God has brought about in this body thankful for the godly teaching and leadership we've had over the years, and especially with Pastor Leland and Pastor Eric. It's important to know where we've come so we can know where we're going as a church. And just as with the Israelites and in our own lives, not to become complacent in past successes. The battle rages on more than ever. There's always more ground to be taken to the Lord. There's strongholds in Port Alberni there are strongholds in people's lives that God wants to have the victory over. So we look forward in faith, trusting in God's promises and in his word, his power and his faithfulness. Hopeful for the work that Christ will do in us and through us, his body, personally and corporately. We'll just close off with scripture. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, even as challenging as it is, sometimes, sometimes we need to hear that. And I pray that we would not just be hearers, Lord, but doers of your word. And Lord, I pray even this morning that someone who is listening to this, Lord, maybe they've been held in chains of darkness and bondage, Lord, that today would be the day that you would free them from that, and they would know the victory of Jesus in their lives, Lord. And maybe some that don't know Jesus at all, Lord, that today would be the day that they would choose life and not death, Lord, to choose you. And so we ask for your working, Lord, in our hearts. And we thank you, Lord. It is not by our might or power, Lord, it is by your spirit that 
it is accomplished. So, Lord, we give this to you. We ask for your help and your um, power going forward. And uh, we thank, thankful for all that you've done, God, in our lives in this place. And we look forward and hope to what you're going to do in the future, Lord, and for the, the battles and victories that uh, you will accomplish um, in us and through us. So we thank you and praise you. We bless you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.